Welcome to another episode of the Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Rowe. Hello, everyone, and good day. Welcome to today's episode of the Chef Educator Podcast, which is titled, Upset Students Can't Learn. My name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I am your host. Now, before we start in on today's topic, I want to give our new listeners a little background information on the podcast. The Chef Educator Podcast is a proud member of the Food Media Network and was created to be a comprehensive resource for both new and veteran culinary, hospitality, and baking and pastry arts teachers, instructors, and faculty at both secondary and post-secondary educational institutions. Our hope is to offer you a collection of practical and effective teaching tools, tips, and techniques that can be used in your culinary classrooms or labs. And here is our big ask. If you enjoy this episode or the Chef Educator podcast overall, please be part of keeping these resources free while also helping to support the creation of future resources. You can do that by making a donation through our Patreon or our Buy Me a Cup of Coffee links, which are www.patreon.com slash drprofessorchef or www.buymeacoffee.com slash chefroach. If you contribute just the price of a coffee a month, three to four dollars a month, you will be helping to support the hosting, purchasing, creation, and production of our shows, episodes, and all the educational materials we produce and give away for free. Again, those links are www.patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Chef or www.buymeacoffee, all one word, dot com slash Chef Roach. And I will leave these links in the show description below so if you can have those are easy access. And we truly appreciate any amount of support that you can provide. And I personally thank you in advance for your help. Okay, so let's get into the show now. So almost every student becomes angry at some point in school. After all, anger is a normal human emotion. And it is not a problem if a student becomes angry as long as he or she expresses their feelings appropriately. However, it is a problem if they express their anger in a way that is hurtful to peers or disruptive to a class. A student who displays angry outbursts can throw a classroom into turmoil. They can also trigger strong feelings in us as the teacher. And our challenge in working with a student whose emotional temperature often reaches the boiling point is to control our own feelings as well as those of the student. Now, an angry student is an inevitable part of teaching. Unfortunately, some students simply don't know how to self-calm and effectively manage their anger. Now, while there is no magic fix for these stressful encounters, there are tips and techniques that we can use as teachers to help diffuse these situations 
by showing students respect and teaching self-regulation skills. And anyone who has been teaching for any length of time has come across a student in a stressed out or anxious state of mind. This can sometimes manifest itself into the telltale signs of inappropriate behaviors or outbursts, uh, negative comments, and even anxiety-ridden movements such as their fidgeting, leg shaking, or fist clenching. These signals should raise immediate concern and indicate that a response may be needed. And the goal of that response would be to de-escalate the situation and attempt to guide the student to a self-regulated mindset. But how do we, as teachers, do that? Well, first, let's review what is going on with a student in the middle of an outburst. Cortisol, which is responsible for keeping people alive in the face of danger, is being released. Often referred to as the stress hormone, cortisol plays a crucial role in our ability to protect ourselves. When we experience stressful situations, the release of cortisol helps us respond rapidly. But it comes with a cost, as it negatively affects the brain's ability to function at an optimal level. Think of it like this. You're out in the woods taking your morning walk. As you round a bend in the trail, you see a huge bear a short distance away who is heading towards you on the trail. Well, immediately two chemicals, cortisol and adrenaline, would be released and you would enter into the fight, flight, or freeze response. You can fight the bear, you can flee by running in the opposite direction as fast as you can, or you could freeze and hope the bear either doesn't see you or decides to go in a different direction. Whatever your response, you find yourself in a moment of stress, anxiety, uncertainty, and fear due to your heightened cortisol levels. Now, adrenaline, or epinephrine, and cortisol, or hydrocortisone, are stress hormones secreted from the adrenal glands, which sits above the kidneys. Now, though both chemicals are stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol play different biochemical roles. Adrenaline primarily binds to receptors on the heart and heart vessels. This increases heart rate, forces muscle contraction, and an increase in respiration. Cortisol, on the other hand, binds to receptors on the fat cells, liver, and pancreas, which increases glucose levels which is then available for muscles to use if needed, like to run or to fight. It also temporarily inhibits other systems of the body, including digestion, growth, reproduction, the immune system, all things we don't need when we're facing a bear. But this is also why if someone has a high level of stress or a constant stress, that's why they get sick a lot because of that effect on the immune system. Now, adrenaline and cortisol are normally secreted in response to a perceived threat in the environment, like the one we just mentioned with the bear. And this so-called fight-or-flight response to a perceived environmental threat gives organisms, such as us, an evolutionary advantage in making them better able to survive by increasing their chances of either destroying the threat or escaping. Now, let's consider how this might look in a learning environment. At the end of a culinary lab class, let's say, there's two students who learn that they have received a poor grade on their cooking practical exams. Now, this is not a life or death situation like the approaching bear, but 
the physiological response can sometimes be the same. In other words, the student's cortisol levels are now high and they become anxious, a state of mind that does not support clear and conscious thinking. So upon entering their next class, which is with you, the two students are visibly upset. One heads straight to their seat and begins to cry, while the other throws their book bag on the floor and punches the desk. As the teacher, recognizing these signs before beginning your class is important. Now, how I would react to this begins long before this actual event happens. And what I mean by that is that I would have already, hopefully, taught my students a little bit about the brain early on in the course. You see, how the brain actually works can be confusing, complex, and often misunderstood, not only from the perspective of adults, but more importantly, from that of the students themselves. And what do students really need to know about their brains? Well, I believe they should know the very basic functions of the brain and how it affects learning. They can always learn more about the brain down the road if they want. So, for the sake of simplicity, here is what I teach my students about their brains. In the book, The Whole Brain Child, by Dr. Siegel and Bryson, there is a concept that I like to share with my students that I think really helps to understand the brain in a simple way. It's called the upstairs and downstairs brain. And here is how it is explained in the book. Picture your brain like a house. Downstairs is where important things live. The basic functions like breathing, strong emotions, innate reactions to danger, like the fight, flight, or freeze we just talked about. Now, just like the downstairs in a house, it is where we almost always find the basics, such as the kitchen, living room, and bathroom. Now, the upstairs brain is more complex. Thinking, imagination, planning are all things that come from the upstairs brain. We use the upstairs brain to think critically, to problem solve, and make good decisions. Now, it is important to note for those of us who work with teens or maybe have had them as children at one time, the upstairs brain is not fully formed until our mid-20s. Now, to be a highly functioning person in the world, we need both the upstairs and the downstairs brain. We need that downstairs brain to work because it's what keeps us breathing. It also saves us from dangerous situations and loops our feelings into logical equations. But what we don't want is it for, for it to be in, fully in control. We need the upstairs and the downstairs brain to work together. And this is where the staircase comes in, which is one of the most important parts of a two-story house because it is the link between the two. And the same logic is true for the brain. When the brain's staircase is built, the upstairs brain can monitor the strong emotions and impulses from the downstairs and help make sense of them. So how do we build this staircase? Well, in the book, it tells us that the most important thing is to be attuned to the child and recognize what part of their brain is controlling their actions. For example, a child throwing a temper tantrum in class because another kid cut in front of her in line at the pencil sharpener doesn't need the same attention as a kid who is so upset that he is finding it difficult to calm down or receive comfort. The first child is in her upstairs brain. The minute she gets to that pencil sharpener, the tears will likely stop. 
she is now in control of her emotions. The second child is in his downstairs brain. He is so upset and angry that he can't make logical decisions. He can't think clearly. And as pointed out in the book, an attuned parent, teacher, or therapist might see that the second child is escalating and immediately try to connect with him, right brain to right brain, and talk, saying something like, I can see that something is really bothering you and that you are really feeling upset about it. Now, after the child feels understood and comforted, he can then turn to problem solving or making better decisions using the upstairs brain. The adult can guide him in a breathing exercise or other soothing technique to help him calm down. Once he is back in his upstairs brain, the issues can be addressed using logic and reason. The mistake, however, many of us make is trying a left-brained intervention, such as asking the child to reason or problem-solve, which they cannot possibly do when they are in their downstairs brain. What's really needed is a right-brain connection by saying something along the lines of, I see you, I hear you, and I care about you. So as we work with children or our students, we need to continually ask ourselves, am I engaging the upstairs brain or am I triggering the downstairs brain? As adults, we are like the brain's staircase carpenters, and it is up to us to make sure that the staircase is built and working. The better we are able to understand this concept, the better we can help our students during stressful situations, as well as during calm character building times. Just remember when doing it, make sure you are using your upstairs brain. Okay, so in order for students to understand how their brain functions, I believe it is important for us to teach them about a few parts of the brain and what their functions are and do. And in order to keep it simple and not turn it into a medical school class, I only teach them about the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, and the hippocampus, which I always try to do early on in the term, just using a quick lesson that I relate to everyday life and to learning. Now, in case you don't know, let me explain briefly what these three parts of the brain do again. The amygdala is the most primitive part of the brain. It is the almond-shaped part that is tucked inside the center of the brain, and it amplifies our emotions, and it's a big part of the downstairs brain. When we are operating from the amygdala, we react quickly. This is where the term fight, flight, or freeze came from, right, or applies. The amygdala also responds to novelty and can engage or encourage attention, something I always try to take advantage of in the classroom. Now, the prefrontal cortex helps us make decisions, helps us problem solve and analyze and interpret our experiences. And this should come as no surprise to any high school teacher or parent of a teenager out there, but this is the last part of the brain to fully develop. Now, the prefrontal cortex can be found in the upstairs brain. The other third part is the hippocampus, and that's important for remembering details and storing memories, something I've talked a lot about in the last few episodes of this podcast, which remember I talked about topics of short-term and long-term memories. Well, the hippocampus is also part of the upstairs brain. Now, why did I pick these three areas of the brain? After all, there's quite a few other important brain parts or features 
like the cerebrum, which controls speech, or the cerebellum, which controls movement? Well, here's why. One, I don't want to overwhelm the students with too much information. And two, these three parts of the brain teach three very important lessons that I want the students to know. For example, the amygdala teaches us that sometimes our brain is flooded with emotion. And that is good news because it's not our fault when we feel overwhelmed. It's our amygdala taking over. And even better news is that we can control it. So I like to teach my students strategies to stop the amygdala from hijacking us and taking over. Now, the prefrontal cortex teaches us that we need to help our brain help us make good decisions, to think clearly, and to control our impulses. And I think it's important for our students to understand that their brain controls all of their actions and that there are things that can, we can do to stretch and grow our brains and as well as to regulate our emotions. Now, the hippocampus teaches us that we need to strengthen and stretch our brains all the time so that we can remember everything we learn at school. We need to retain knowledge, and remembering is important. If you can't retain what you learned in the first year, then the second year is going to be pretty difficult. Students need the reminder that they have to use their brains in order to learn. And as I've discussed before on this podcast, the amygdala directs rapid responses when necessary. In other words, the fight, flight, or freeze response. When the amygdala detects a threat, it responds faster than the prefrontal cortex, which directs the ability to make decisions and problem solve. And it also reacts or responds faster than the hippocampus, which, as we just talked about, is responsible for remembering details and storing memories. Because all of these things, we don't need them when we're face-to-face with a bear. So we're glad that the amygdala takes control during that part. We don't need to rationalize and reason and think and try to use a memory. We just need to run or fight. However, when it comes to learning in the classroom, the two areas of the brain most needed for academic work, which is the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, well, they're bypassed. As a result, an anxious, stressed, or fearful state of mind by anyone can lead to poor decision-making, an inability to think with clarity, and probably has the use of impulsive behaviors now. And as a teacher with the primary responsibility of helping students learn, none of that is going to be possible when a student is in that state of mind. So for that reason alone, this should be an important topic for teachers. We need to get them away from that amygdala, that downstairs part of the brain, and move them into the upstairs where they can use that prefrontal cortex, where they can use that hippocampus and learn. Therefore, learning how to calm ourselves, and that goes both for us and our students, is imperative for our well-being. And there are numerous techniques out there that are designed to decrease negative impulses and emotions, techniques that we can share with our students. And when I share them with my students, I have one goal or objective in mind, and that is to help them become more regulated thinkers and better learners. So what are some of these de-escalation techniques? Well, let's go back to the two upset students in our class, right? The examples we talked about. Obviously, those two students aren't ready to work or learn. So as the teacher we can take a few minutes to help or guide them back to a calm state of mind. And this normally doesn't take a lot of time. 
This whole interaction and process being solely centered on the student only takes anywhere from four to five minutes. Now, some of these techniques I'm going to talk about, I got from an article in Edutopia that was written by Daniel Volrath. And I will provide a link in the show notes in case you want to read the full article. But here are some tips and techniques of what you, as the teacher, can do or say to an upset student to calm them down. First, stay calm. It is crucial that you stay calm. This sometimes can be difficult, but raising your voice and losing your tempo only escalate the situation. If needed, take a deep breath and count to 10 before reacting. You want to model calm behavior. The most effective way to foster a calm attitude with your students is to engage in this behavior yourself. Calm begets calm. In dealing with an angry student, also you want to avoid arguing with them or threatening them. This will only fuel their anger and risk triggering an outburst. You can send a strong message without raising your voice. In addition, be aware of your body language. For example, crossing your arms might provoke the student's anger. Now, second, don't take things personally. Try to empathize with the student. Keep in mind that their misbehavior may be caused by factors beyond their control, right? Such as stress, physical symptoms, or even something happening at home that you as the teacher are not even aware of. Therefore, do not take their words personally. In a fit of anger, the student may say things that make your blood boil, right? But remind yourself that their comments may be unrelated to anything you said or did. Their anger may have nothing to do with events even in school. and may be more related to home issues. And if you fear you may react in a way that fuels the student's anger, I suggest you try taking a deep breath and counting to five or ten before you respond. Get yourself ready to engage. Next, I suggest you create a safe setting. If possible, handle the situation outside of the classroom. If it's not possible to leave the classroom, you know, say, hey, come on, let's step out in the hall. Let's talk. Come on, let's go out and calm down. Then you want to try to keep your interaction with the student semi-private. So maybe you can move off to one side of the classroom, you know, bring them off to a corner somewhere away from the other students. Again, don't try to bring attention to it. It's also important to try to create a setting where the angry student feels safe. For this, you know, like don't position yourself in between the student and the door. And if needed, give the student plenty of personal space. I'd say at least, you know, two arms length. Don't let them coming down on them. Give them some space, you know, talk in a calm voice. And be sure to demonstrate non-threatening body language. As I mentioned, body language can greatly affect the tone of your encounter with an upset student. So avoid crossing your arms, clenching your hands, you know, placing your hands on your hips. You know, you don't want to come across as that authority at this point. A relaxed stance communicates that you are calm and models the behavior you are wanting from the student. Now, depending on the situation, you may need to wait a little, you know, because the student in the midst of their fit of anger is not someone you can reason with, right? They're in their downstairs brain. So don't try to have a conversation with the student until he or she is calm. I like to give the students a minute or so to regain their calm. And then I might say something along the lines of, I notice you're really upset and I thought we could breathe slowly together for a minute in order to calm ourselves. Let's manage our impulses. You know, something along those lines, nice voice, calm them down. Once they're calm, I try and have a private, non-threatening talk with the student. 
They may expect you to be angry with them for their outburst, right? That's what they're expecting. Surprise them by reacting supportively. Tell the student, wow, you must be hurting to lose control like you did. You may want to recognize their concern and let them know you care about them by saying something like, I can see that what happened really upsets you. You know, your effort to connect with them may even encourage them to open up and discuss why they are so angry. And if they do, listen attentively without interrupting. Let them talk about it. Let them get it off their chest. And also let the student know that it's okay to get angry, but that they have to find a way to express their anger in a way that does not disrupt the class. You can even offer some suggestions of your own and how they may do that because they don't know. You can even suggest what they can say because many students act out when angry because they lack the vocabulary to express their feelings, right? They get that. They're all full of frustration. And again, I always try to do this using positive communication. I always try and be respectful in my communications and try to open the meeting with a positive statement. The student is most likely expecting negativity, and by being positive, you may be able to disarm the student into letting down his or her negative guard. Also, use simple and direct language. The student is more likely to be responsive if you use simple vocabulary and brief sentences. And as I mentioned, listen. Gain the student's trust and respect by showing him or her that you will listen. Don't interrupt the student and try and repeat what he or she is saying as a way of validating their feelings. This validation can have a powerful effect on getting the student to calm down, right? Use statements such as, this feels like it's really important to you, or I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So you're not interrupting, you're not trying to be critical or negative, you're just having that conversation, calming them down. Next, I try to find or establish common ground. And you may be able to do this by communicating that you understand why the student is upset. You're not excusing the behavior, but simply stating that most people would be upset if they experienced a similar infraction or issue. And if you cannot find a point where you both can agree, you should simply state that you agree to disagree. Now, if the student is still upset and having, having a lot of trouble calming down, I usually try and have the student redirect their thoughts. I might say, okay, let's take a minute here. Close your eyes, breathe slowly, and think about something that makes you happy. I then lead the student by taking a deep breath myself, and then slowly exhaling it. Now, while the student is doing this, I try and provide positive feedback on becoming calm directing the student to be aware of their thoughts and their feelings. You know, in a calm voice, I may say something like, you know, hey, what's going on right now? What's going on in your mind? Or tell me what you're thinking, how you feel. Um, Are you ready to focus on moving forward with getting calm? Or if I think they're still really upset, I may say, hey, if you need more time to settle down, let me know. And if I do think the student needs a little more time to refocus, I might even tell them, hey, why don't you take a minute? Maybe go for a walk. Go get some air. Go get a drink of water. Come on back. We'll talk then. Now, once I have the student in their upstairs brain, I try to get the student to take responsibility for his or her behavior. Because once you are conversing with the student in a productive way, encourage him or her to take responsibility for monitoring their own behavior. You know, try using standard negotiating tactics, such as proposing a couple of options, compromising when appropriate, and then implement ways to measure outcomes. 
I also try and have the student reflect on the future. I might do this by saying, hey, the next time you're feeling this way and I'm not here, what can you tell yourself in order to take charge of your thinking and behavior and get yourself to a calm, regulated place? Lastly, I try and provide an opportunity for the student to save face. Giving the student an opportunity to save face can go a long way in diffusing a power struggle. Ask the student to offer some ideas on how to resolve the situation and or provide a number of options to choose from. Ask, okay, where do we go from here? What are we going to do now? Is there any apologies due? And if so, to who? So in closing, we know an upset student can't learn. It is physically impossible. Our brains won't allow it. Therefore, as educators with the main task of teaching students, we cannot do our job effectively if one of our students is upset to the point where they cannot learn. We need to intervene, to de-escalate, and if possible, get the student calm enough so that the cortisol and the adrenaline subsides and the amygdala relaxes its grip, allowing the other parts of the brain, mainly the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, to do their jobs. And to do that, it all starts by supporting the academically frustrated student. We know, sometimes not uncommon, for a student to have an outburst in class as a result of his or her frustration with schoolwork. And if this is the case with one of your students, give them the support they need and provide accommodations where possible to lessen their frustration and increase their academic confidence. I also suggest that you intervene early. Know your students, communicate with your students, and problem solve when necessary with your students. Tell that disruptive student that you think they can control their temper, especially if the two of you work together on it. Ask them, what is making them angry? If they have trouble answering this question, suggest some possibilities. Maybe schoolwork, peer problems, home issues. And then ask them if you're on target. We also need to consider our interactions with the student and ask them if we are upsetting them in any way. If I am able to identify a cause for their anger, I can then try and work with them to develop an action plan to deal with the issues that are provoking the anger. And try and reach out to all your students. Angry students typically distrust teachers and perceive them in an adversarial manner. If you have a student with a chip on their shoulder, make a special effort to connect with them. Eventually, they may begin to trust you and perhaps talk with you about what is upsetting them. You might greet them at the door before class, you know, in a friendly manner, you know, use a positive comment. And when they speak to you, listen attentively, show respect for what they are saying. If, you know, find a few minutes every so often to talk with them about their interests and hobbies if possible. You know, we always have that downtime in class or in labs, maybe when they're working, go over, you know, try to make a special contact with these students. Lastly, I try and look for a pattern. Identifying the circumstances surrounding a student's outburst can help anticipate when they might occur and what we as teachers might do to prevent them. In observing these incidents, consider you know, what's going on at that time? You know, what happens right before the outburst? Do they happen at a certain time of the day? Or do they happen in the presence of certain people? Um, does the student do something to signal that an outburst is imminent? Answering these questions 
may help you figure out what is fueling the flare-ups and what may be reinforcing them. And in that way, you can then act accordingly. For example, if a student with a reading disability often gets upset right before they're expected to read out loud, well, you're going to want to find a way to relieve this obvious discomfort about reading in public. Okay, well, that is just about all the time we have for this episode of the Chef Educator Podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it and got something from it. And please, if you liked it, or even if you didn't, let us know. Your feedback and comments are always welcome, as they help us in making the best show possible. So please, let us know what you think. Drop us a line. It will really help us. You can email us your thoughts, your suggestions, comments, testimonials, good or bad to foodmedianetwork at gmail.com, foodmedianetwork at gmail.com. won't take very long. Just drop us a quick email. Or even quicker is probably leave us a voicemail on our audience response hotline. Just leave us a voicemail, 207-835-1275. Just pick up your phone, cell phone, dial it in, 207-835-1275. Just leave us a voicemail. Don't worry, nobody's going to pick up. You don't have to talk to anybody. Just leave us a voicemail. And lastly, don't forget to buy us a cup of coffee or two. Do that at www.buymeacoffee.com backslash Chef Roach. Or you can do it through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Dr. Professor Chef. We truly appreciate any help you can provide. Even a dollar helps. Five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you can do, help support this show and keep it running. We thank you in advance. Okay then, till we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.